0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
1: On this episode, a secret space program whistleblower describes his tour of duty on the red planet.
2: To my knowledge, the indigenous insectoids and the indigenous reptoids on Mars have no interest of anything happening outside their own world at this time.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Canada's decontamination specialists, Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners. Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners is committed to helping people when tragedy strikes. Their objective is to restore safety to an environment in the most professional and discreet manner possible. To contact Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners, visit crimescenecleaners.ca. Call 1-866-724-0800. 1-866-724-0800. Or email them at info at CrimeSceneCleaners.ca.
0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres, Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption. The secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett.
1: Welcome to your Monday. Hey, just a reminder, I'll be hosting Coast to Coast AM, Friday, October 25th. And Saturday, October 26th. And you can go to Coast to Coast AM for more information and to find an affiliate near you that carries the program. Also, don't forget, if you're in the Toronto area, there's a free reverse speech event happening Saturday, October 26th at 40 Donlands Avenue, just steps from the Donlands subway station. That's Metamorphosis. Greek Orthodox Church, 40 Donlands Avenue. Again, a free reverse speech workshop from 11 to 1, which will be run by Christian Dicadieu of Paranormal Contractors and co-host of Reverse Speech Radio. And then from 2 to 4 p.m., David John Oates, all the way from Australia, the discoverer of Reverse Speech, takes the stage. I'll be your MC. And again, this is a free event. Saturday, October 26th, workshop 11 to 1. David John Oates takes the stage, 2 to 4 p.m., 40... Donlans Avenue in Toronto. Hope to see you there. Randy Kramer's life experiences are either incredible or absurd. He reports that he spent 20 years as a Marine in the U.S. secret space program. His tour of duty took him first to an elaborate secret fully equipped base on the moon. Then he went to Mars where he spent 17 years at a military base. After a major loss of human lives during a battle between the military forces and native people of Mars, he was deployed back to the moon where he spent his final three years as a military pilot. Randy tells his story with vivid and captivating detail and says he was only four years old when he began training for the secret space program through a program called Project Moonshadow. He was one of approximately 300 girls and boys who were covertly drafted to participate in the program. He recalls that during his childhood, he would be taken from his bed at night, even though he would be gone for days or even weeks, he would be returned to his bed and travel back in time to when he was taken, and then wake up as though no time had passed, feeling like he had just had a really, really long dream. Randy Kramer, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Richard. Well, let's just begin with your incredible story and it is incredible obviously uh when we're talking about uh, a secret space program and uh and uh, serving time on uh mars and and the moon and so forth but just walk me through the process of how you were able to recall these these memories was it through uh you know regression therapy hypnosis how did you recover these memories
2: oh that's a long, complicated answer to that question. I'll see if I can't make it uh, much shorter than it should be if I was to be complete with that. So uh, I would say that the end of my tour, which is right where the suppression, uh, memory suppression technology takes place. Some people often call it a memory wipe, but it's not really. It's just a suppression of of memories so that you don't remember what happened or you think you were Having a dream or any other number of odd things that can occur, you feel about it. I would say, though, rather immediately, I was experiencing uh, dreams, memories, flashes, um, traumatic shocks, and so forth that someone would be experiencing from a post-traumatic experience. So I would say that the memories were bleeding through almost right away, but it was over probably a decade before I started to – uh, understand that there was a bigger picture of what was happening underneath there to kind of get at it. So it was a it was a lengthy process. I mean, um, I would say the full memory recovery it was uh, you know almost 15, 17 years or something like that. It was a really lengthy process, but combination of You know, a lot of meditative uh, exercises going into alpha, theta states in order to get into those memories. Did a few hypnotherapy sessions. I really didn't find them that necessary, but a few that I did were helpful. Uh, But for the most part, it really was just about using the skills that I understood how my own mind worked and going into deep memory places and pulling the memories up and sifting through them. And I cannot understate the thousands and thousands literally of hours that it took for me to do this. So it was was not in any way, shape or form a a quick process, an easy process, um, a simple process. It was absolutely one of the longest, most complicated, arduous processes I've ever had to engage in solving a problem in my entire life. But um, it was very important to me because I knew that remembering was very important. And so uh, even though I knew I was kind of chasing something ephemeral the whole time, I was very dedicated to the process because I knew that even though I couldn't quite remember everything that had occurred, I knew that remembering it was maybe the most important thing that I could possibly do. So that's the shortest answer maybe I can give to uh, an answer that really just took decades to sort out so that's a complicated one
1: and what was I'm guessing there must have been a a, a personal cost per, personal perhaps a professional cost in order to go through this process to get at the truth what did you give up what did you lose
2: wow like probably everything for a couple of decades I mean I I went through uh relationships um and friendships and distance from certain family members, um, lost jobs because of it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much, you could say over a few decades, it cost me just about everything in the process. But like I said, it was I, I knew that it was more important than anything to remember. So as costly as all of those things are, uh, I wouldn't trade remembering for anything, but It was a very, yeah, very costly process.
1: So let's start, I guess, at the beginning, Project Moonshadow. You talk about being four years old and you're training for the SSP, the Secret Space Program, uh, and you were recruited involuntarily. How how does a four-year-old get caught up in this, and why you?
2: Sure. Uh, There's a little nuance here that uh, is easy for people to miss, which is that I was genetically engineered from the ground up for this program. So it wasn't so much accurate to say that I was recruited at a young age so much as that I was engineered and born into the program.
1: Ah, okay. And, well, let's drill down on that idea a little bit. I mean, uh, you know, under... Under whose permission then? I mean, how did this happen that you were uh, essentially born into this program? Tell me about your parents, I guess, in this case.
2: Well, my parents weren't exactly voluntary participants in this process either. Uh, In fact, I I don't know that any of the families uh, involved were voluntary. Uh, This was a process which families were identified by genetic markers and families that were seen fit to have certain genetic markers within set aside to, uh, for genetic samples from the mother and father to be taken, uh, blended together in sort of a test tube environment and then to have um, certain codons removed, excuse me, and then replaced by extraterrestrial DNA uh, to enhance uh, certain physical, mental abilities. So, yeah, it was uh, not really a voluntary process on anyone's part. It was just sort of uh, done.
1: And then you're taken in from your bed at night. Uh, so is is this, I mean, it sounds an awful lot like an alien abduction.
2: Well, they're using really similar technology, to be honest with you. So um, I would say for the most part, uh Wormholes, jump gates were used, so I would often wake up because the implants in my head would click on and would wake me up, and a wormhole or jump gate would appear in the wall or closet door of my room. A couple technicians would walk through. Uh, I was quite familiar with the process, so I'd get up, they'd walk me through the jump gate, and then take me to a training session or to a facility where I would go through a training protocol and then return.
1: How were you treated? Were they were they kind? Were they cold?
2: Uh, I mean, I was a soldier. I, I, so I wouldn't say that they were unnecessarily cruel or mean, but we certainly weren't coddled. So uh, I, I would say we were treated fair and firm.
1: And where was this base on the moon?
2: Well, Luna Operations Command is on the backside, and I, I honestly have been there, but I could not even tell you what the actual scope of the facility is. So, uh, other, other than saying that it took some place near, underneath the surface at Luna operations command, I couldn't be more
1: specific than that. And there, how many of the, uh, of you were there?
2: Uh, there were 300 test subjects, uh, children uh, who were put into the program. I'm not sure how many auxiliary personnel.
1: And, um, what was a typical, you know, day of training? Like, what did you do? Do you remember?
2: I mean, it changed over time. So the younger we were, the more the training resembled games, physical conditioning, uh, puzzle testing, things like that. And as we got older, then, you know, it became practice weaponry and then, you know, live fire, ammo weaponry, high tech weaponry. So it was, it was an evolving process when we were very young. I say it was just said games uh, and by the time we were in our early teens, it was, you know, um, full size adult weapons and uh, high tech weapons, including plasma rifles and rail guns and stuff
1: like that. And, and did you develop relationships with your, um, your classmates, I guess, for lack of a better term, your fellow trainees?
2: Uh, yes and no. I, I mean we had a familiarity with one another due to the training protocols. Um, but we didn't really spend time socializing. so I don't know how to describe what a relationship like that is um, except that it's it's sort of based on it's task oriented it's professional oriented. Uh, you're not spending time you know talking about your favorite color, your favorite kind of ice cream you, you're Pretty much having conversations and relating in a way that's uh, task-related. So, as odd as it may sound, this was a—it was just a very squared-off professional relationship with these
1: people. And how long would these sessions of uh, these training uh, sessions last before you were sort of sent back to your bed?
2: Anywhere from about twelve hours to seven or eight days.
1: And then you were sent back in time. So it was like you're waking. If you disappeared on a Tuesday and you were gone for a week, they sent you back a week in time. Is that the idea?
2: Right. You basically come back 15 minutes after you left.
1: And each time was your memory wiped?
2: No, the memory sort of suppressed and sort of separated at that point. So I can remember when I was young, Waking up after training sessions, um, but because I didn't have a context to understand that I had actually been to another place, even a memory of having been to another place would really just seem like a weird dream. So I would often wake up with these incredibly vivid visceral uh, dreams about training programs and training protocols and peculiar locations and so forth, and which is think that they were strange dreams. It really took me some years of my life later to realize that other people didn't have those dreams just, you know, out of course, that that was weird. So I, at the time, it I didn't seem out of course for me or, or strange, but later in life, I realized that that was a very strange thing.
1: And and who did you learn eventually was behind Project Moonshadow? Who was running that operation?
2: I was run by United States Marine Corps Special Section.
1: And, and there was no involvement of other countries, uh, international groups, etc.
2: Um To my understanding, it was a, a localized program, stateside program. There were some extraterrestrial scientists and engineers who helped us with the program, but it was pretty much uh, a stateside program only.
1: And how long had that base been there? On the moon?
2: Oh, gosh, I think it was, uh, they started construction on that thing back in the 50s, 1950s.
1: Amazing, amazing. Randy Kramer is uh, with us. Here on the Conspiracy Show, just a reminder, he'll be appearing at the Alien Cosmic Expo, which is taking place at the Airport Marriott Hotel here in Toronto, September 21-22. Randy will be speaking on the uh, the Sunday, the 22nd, at uh, 2.30 p.m., and then he'll be taking part in the, uh, the Speaker Roundtable which is happening between 4 and 5 p.m., and people uh, can go to aliencosmicexpo.com, aliencosmicexpo, all one word, .com for more information and uh, for tickets and to register. Uh, so after Project Moonshadow, uh, after you complete your training, at what point uh, are, you, are you sent to Mars, this colony on Mars?
2: I was deployed to my actual tour of duty when I was 17 years old. <clears throat> um, technicians came through a jump gate like normal. I figured it was a normal training exercise, but it wasn't. I got taken to Luna Operations Command for a physical exam, psych eval, sign the contract, and then get put on a transport ship that took us to Mars.
1: How long did that journey take?
2: 10 minutes uh the ship the ship took a jump gate so the ship itself sort of everybody boarded it it exited the hangar and then it took a jump gate and was there in a matter of minutes
1: now the uh well describe this this uh installation on mars there's a number of colonies there right five i think the number was I, I
2: don't know how many colonies there are on the moon at all. I only know of uh, the L7 colony, and there are, to my, there were, to my knowledge, uh, five or six colonies on Mars, but we're not sure how many of them are fully operational at this time.
1: Right. And and the group on Mars, now this is an international group, correct?
2: Correct. Yes. Tell me about it. Uh, it's broken down into a lot of umbrellas. So uh, the colonies are run by an outfit called the MCC or the Mars Colony Corporation. The Mars Colony Corporation operates under the umbrella of the ICC, which is the International Corporate Conglomerate, which operates under the umbrella of um, the sort of loosely put together covert military space program activity, which is a combination of military programs, corporate programs, uh, global... Cooperative programs that are not always cooperating—that gets complicated. Um, but it's it, it gets a little it can, can get a little confusing and a little messy because it's not like one organization that just runs everything. So,
1: but it's not just the United States, right? There are other countries involved: Germany, oh, Russia. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, d- depending on how long any uh, individual participating countries have been participating might depend on just how developed their own space program or their own participation is. But you have participation with most of what we would call the sort of G20 countries.
1: But but it's kind of ironic, and I think you've pointed this out, is that here we have the United States, Russia, China uh, cooperating on Mars, yet back here on Earth, uh, you know, they're not exactly getting along. So what's happening there? That's an interesting dynamic.
2: This has always been one of those really interesting things that, to me, is kind of like understanding a relationship of oil and water. Uh, and if you anybody who's ever taken a high school chemistry class, you may have had a, a chemistry teacher have a, a flask full of an oil and water and watch them how they just don't mix together no matter what you do in the same vessel. And in Some ways what you have here is you have these covert military space programs operating together and then you have normal operational state government and they're kind of like oil and water. There is a place where they do connect but not in the way that some people would think that they would. So uh, most people who are going about their day-to-day social government economic business in the various countries of the world are doing so from the perspective – that there is no such thing as a covert military space program because they're not in on the know of it. Those who are in on the know of it are the ones who are responsible for sort of tying the loose ends together. But for most individuals who are in the regular operational governments, militaries, uh, they're absolutely clueless about covert military space program activities. So uh, it's kind of an oil and water thing. They just don't mix for the most part the way that they've Set up operations over the over the decades for them to be very separate.
1: And so you're now uh, you're a captain in the U.S. Marines stationed on Mars, correct?
2: Not at that time. No, I, I started as an enlisted person, came in as a private, and had to claw my way up through the, through the ranks before I made captain.
1: And and again, uh, at night you're transported uh, back to your bed, or or are they at this point? are they taking you, uh, are they still taking you from your bedroom or are you, are you, uh, you know, somewhere else? Do you mean currently or do you mean when I was no. on the No, when, yeah. when you were on, when you were stationed on Mars. Oh, right,
2: yeah. right. Certainly. No, no, I was there 24-7. I lived there for 17 years. So there was no coming back and forth. We got sent and we stayed there until we were done.
1: My word. And... Again, this, is, this must be so unbelievable to many people listening and incredible. Um, I mean, were you able to bring back anything, any that, that might substantiate or corroborate these claims, for example, uh, I don't know, a battle scar or uh, some sort of an implement, a tool, some documentation?
2: Well, I, I, people like to ask questions like that, but I need to convey that there's simply no way in which that could happen. Um, you're, you're not. It's not a situation where I have my own backpack and my own clothes, and and I'm not completely searched or stripped down or or, or put from one uniform to another by other personnel, which is what's happening. So, there, even if I had. Uh, taken some item that I thought that I could sneak back and shoved it into an orifice hoping that I could sneak it back they still would have found it and I still wouldn't have been able to bring it back so now I do have a a couple of dog tag implants behind my ears I'm hoping to get removed and looked at so you know we're hoping to have some evidence in that sense at some point there's a paperwork process we're going through that some point we expect there to be a settlement but yeah it's just It's a very clean process, meaning uh, the, the organizers of this process have made sure in a quite sanitary way that there is nothing that you take with you that they don't want you to take with you, and there is nothing you bring back that they don't want you to bring back.
1: More of my conversation with Captain Randy Kramer when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Oh, joy, the joy of a healthy digestive system, that is. GI Joy from GetTheTea.com. Now, I take two capsules a day of this unique proprietary blend of colostrum. Colostrum is rich in immunoglobulins or antibodies that are known to stimulate the immune system. But GI Joy also is chock full of Acidophilus, Aloe, Peppermint, and Turmeric. And all I can say is I have a very happy tummy. Yes, GetTheTea.com has great, non-GMO, caffeine-free herbal teas. I've been talking about them for months. But there's so much more at GetTheTea.com, including G.I. Joy. Use the code UNLIMITED on your first order, and they'll pay for the shipping. G.I. Joy, for a healthy digestive system and a happy tummy. Not available in any stores. Get yours at GetTheTea.com.
0: If there's one thing money can't buy, it's sanity. (laughs) Conspiracy Unlimited. (laughs) With Richard Serrett.
1: Captain Randy Kramer is here discussing his tour of duty with the Mars Defense Force. So, what was the purpose of you being on Mars and the other troops?
2: Well, it was a stated purpose that we were there to protect the perimeter around the colonies. But over time, what I began to understand was that our primary purpose there was to test weapons technology. So we weren't really there so much to protect anybody so much as we were to
1: have uh, regular
2: kerfuffles with the locals in order to perfect military hardware.
1: And you were staying at the what was called the main settlement which was the first Earth settlement there. Tell me about Aries. Oh, no, no, no. no. We,
2: I, was, I was never – I mean, Ares Primus is the headquarters of the MCC and where the colonies are. But, I mean, I've been to Ares Primus, but I've never been to the colonies proper. Oh. So we were at a, a forward operating station called uh, Forward Station Zebra, uh, which it was way north. Uh, so, no, I was actually never stationed at the colonies. I've never – been inside the colonies don't even know what they look like other than what they've they've been reported to be my other persons and uh really the stops at Aries Primus were not much more than stops
1: so you were not allowed to to mix uh with with the the settlers i guess we can call them
2: oh no not at all yeah yeah we were kept very separate from them
1: but but do you know what can you tell me about these settlements i mean how are they organized what can you tell me about the people uh You know, the types of skills and the types of people that were recruited to colonize Mars.
2: Um, That's a slightly complicated question to answer because the colonies are separated by nation states. So uh, the first sort of, you know, whatever it was, five or six uh, nation states that were able to financially put the wherewithal together to build a colony were able to build the first colonies, which have financially struggled over the years, from my understanding, Um, because they're run by different nation states, which have different social political ideas about how to run a colony, which includes economic system, social structure. Uh, They're all run very, very differently. And because I, again, have never been there, I couldn't be more specific other than to say that they're, interesting socioeconomic experiments run by the countries who started the individual colonies uh, to see what works and what doesn't. And so there have been some financial struggles. There was a worker revolt. We're really not sure what's happening across the board right now. There's a lot of um, not information that's flowing clearly to and from the colonies right now.
1: And were you also there to to stake out a portion of Mars as a, as U.S. territory?
2: Well, we certainly were under the impression that we were being territorial; that we had a territory that was ours to protect, to defend. Anything that came uh, to incur upon that territory, we you know met, reached out to meet them, fight them on the field of battle if necessary. Uh, but. Again, it turns out that that just wasn't really the purpose in the end. I think a lot of that territorial questions were arbitrary based on tactical decisions on where the best places to test military equipment were, more so rather than it being an actual necessary territorial you know, location that we were securing territory with. Uh, I think that, to be honest, the technology that protects the colonies proper from any proper invasion is probably a little more high-tech than just soldiers in battle armor, to be honest with you. So um, I'm not sure exactly what they're using to protect the colonies, but I think it's um, a bit more of an iron fist than just guys in body armor.
1: One of the most remarkable things that you that you learned uh, on Mars was that the you say the atmosphere, the air there is breathable. Tell me about that.
2: Oh, sure. Uh, it's Thin, um, the farther north you go, the thinner it gets. So think of it kind of like a high plains, uh, mountainous environment as far as what the air is, you know, the thinness, quality of the air. But it's certainly breathable. Uh, When we were towards the equator, uh, the temperature outside, you know, felt like it in broad daylight, midday was well into the 50s, maybe low 60s Fahrenheit. Uh, And then certainly when we were up farther north, it was much, much colder, closer to freezing more often than not. But, yeah, breathable, just thin.
1: Yet we're told Mars has no atmosphere, virtually no atmosphere.
2: Well, that's actually not completely true either. There's this interesting um, way in which NASA has been uh, telling us information about the quality of life that we understand or the – quality of the atmosphere and so forth that we understand it to be over time. And so, if you go back to the Viking lander, even though there was an experiment on the lander that demonstrated that there was uh, microbes in the soil, which is demonstrating that there was a gaseous environment that they could live in, they tried to tell you, oh, no, wait, there's really not a livable environment. And then some time later, a few years back, we end up, they say, Oh no! Wait, wait. Now we think there's uh, water droplets that form and little rivulets of running waters. We think there's actually some water on the surface. And then like, oh, oh, wait. Now we've discovered there's an underground lake that uh, might have a whole bunch of water in it. And then they're like, oh wait. Uh, the mass gas spectrometer shows that there is actually signs of oxygen and carbon dioxide and moisture in the environment and there may be livable atmosphere there right now, and then, oh, wait, now there's actually underground oceans. So most people have not been following these stories, but I have, and so some of these also have sort of come out in what we call the kind of, back in the days when people used to read newspapers, a 12-D story, meaning uh, when they wanted to bury a story back in the old newspaper days, they would just put it on section D, page 12, because nobody hardly ever reads that section, So some of these articles were not front page news stories, were not, you know, things that were spread across the Internet. They were more quietly uh, mentioned. And if you weren't paying attention, then it completely would have gone over your head. But the truth is, uh, what they have admitted as of this point right now is that there's water. There's frozen water. There's water under the ground. There's potentially livable atmosphere uh, with moisture, ar- oxygen, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, um, and sources of under- vast sources of underwater water, under uh, underground water. Sorry. So that's what they've admitted so far is what's there. Now they still haven't quite said, oh yeah, there's an oxygen environment. But my favorite quote uh, when they put this article about uh, about looking through the mass gas spectrometer and the telescopes have seen that there was actually uh, atmosphere, that there was uh, uh, breathable gases, potentially moisture. Mm -hmm. The quote from the director of NASA at that time in the article said, we may have to accept that there is livable atmosphere on Mars right now. That was the director of NASA at the time, in his own words, in that article, so they've actually been telling us quite a bit. They're just doing it so quietly and so subtly that most people don't know
1: that.: Were you living above or, or below ground?:
2: Definitely below ground. Uh, we lived inside a mountain.
1: Were you anywhere near Sidonia and had, had you or had you visited Sidonia?:
2: Never been there, and we were way farther north than that for sure.
1: Was there any talk about Sidonia?
2: No, not not that I ever heard of. Hmm.
1: So, tell me what what's a, a, a typical day uh, when you're in this outfit on Mars? Are are you are you conducting military exercises? What are you doing mainly? A
2: typical day is either train, 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 or patrol, patrol, patrol. And if things get exciting, then fight, fight, fight. But that's mostly it. Uh, you train, we patrol, we eat, we sleep, we poop, we fight, and that was
1: about it. Tell me about your your weaponry. What kind of weapons did you have?
2: Primary weapon was a railgun, which is a magnetically propelled uh, rifle. It, people don't know what that is. It's a series of electromagnetics, electromagnets. I'm sorry, that turn off and on rapidly, uh, take a magnetic projectile, and it hurls it down the end of the barrel uh, in a little magnetic field. So you get this incredibly fast flying projectile out the end of the barrel without a chemical explosion, which is where you get that kickback from. So you get this very steady shot uh, that you also have a very low heat generation. So the two main problems with a regular bullet is uh, jumping, the barrel jumping from the kickback from the chemical explosion and overheating from the chemical explosion. So the magnetically propelled rifle solves both those problems.
1: You were talking about getting into these skirmishes and these heated battles. Who exactly, or what exactly, were you were you fighting?
2: Well, primarily, we were territorially adjoined to an indigenous insectoid species and an indigenous reptoid species. So, most days, it was either indigenous insectoids or indigenous reptoids.
1: And how organized were they? Were they evolved? Were they... Uh, <laughs> Did they have advanced Uh, technology?
2: I consider both of the species in their own way to be incredibly involved. Their use of technology was certainly a little bit different than our own, uh, but they were highly intelligent, highly communicative, very advanced. Certainly their technological capabilities were very, very high. Uh, How they chose to exercise or use those technological abilities uh, has more to do with Uh, them socially or as a species, but they were very advanced.
1: And you described their living conditions uh, as hives or nests. Just explain a little bit more about that.
2: Well, that's how they were described to us. Um, I consider them to be very well developed living quarters. uh, The insectoids had really, really amazing interior architecture. I mean, they could dig out Uh, a series of tunnels and chambers and that you know looked like they were done uh, by professional construction crews with uh, you know levels and you know able to smooth down the surfaces to um, I mean it was just it was was way more incredible than what I expected. I expected uh, to be more like an ant hive you know to sort of like rough around the edges and just rough tunnels dug into the dirt. And it was just not that at all. It was incredibly uh, advanced engineering. The reptoids had done an amazing job of converting these caverns into uh, dwelling spaces. Since they'd been living underground for thousands of years, as I understand it, um, developing these underground communities was pretty essential. But they live quite comfortably. And quite well underground. Um, and again, there was the evidence of advanced technology to have created these spaces, but not necessarily the evidence of a lot of the use of that advanced technology. But in the case of the indigenous reptoids, this was really a personal choice. Uh, they felt since technology had nearly destroyed their planet that the excessive use of technology was in itself a negative cultural trait. And so they, chose to believe that anything that they could do without having to use some form of advanced technology was better off than uh, creating a robot that they push a button or something with. So they, they had this very interesting idea about that.
1: And, and how did these two indigenous groups get along? Did, they, did the reptoids fight with the insectoids or were they united in their battles against you?
2: Oh, no, they fought all the time. Yeah, so uh, it, it was pretty much a three-sided chess game in that way. So it was, uh, de- depending on the day, it could get very confusing.
1: And, I mean, when these colonies were first established on, on Mars, did they initially get along with the indigenous insectoids and reptoids? And, and, and then if so, what changed?
2: I honestly couldn't tell you uh, that I am not privy to the history of the colonies or pretty much anything that happened before I got there.
1: But were the were the insectoids and the reptoids uh, involved in skirmishes with the colonies or just with the the military uh, groups?
2: Again, when. When we were there, uh, we were engaging with them militarily on a regular basis. The colonies had been there for some years before I arrived there, and I simply can't say what was happening before I showed up there.
1: Were you ever involved in in sort of close proximity, like hand-to-hand combat with these these creatures? I mean, how would you describe them, their physicality?
2: Oh, yeah, all the time. Uh, The indigenous reptoids... Uh, you know, they could be anywhere from about, you know, five and a half feet tall for a little one to almost seven feet tall for a big one. Uh, the insectoids, the drones are about, again, maybe five, five and a half feet tall, but they tend not to engage in combat themselves. They preferred to engineer other insects to do their job for them so we were more often when dealing with the insectoids facing swarms of beetles and things that they would send after us it was really quite annoying
1: so we're talking about these uh, insectoids and the the reptoids now are these the same uh, species that some people have claimed to have encountered uh, or have had contact with here on earth or in sort of an abduction scenario are they involved in any of that?
2: To my knowledge, no. Uh, to my knowledge, the indigenous insectoids and the indigenous reptoids uh, on Mars have no interest of anything happening outside their own world at this time. We do, however, on this planet, planet Earth, have our own indigenous insectoid species that are subterranean, that live beneath our feet. We also have at least one indigenous Uh, reptoid species that also lives beneath our feet that are pretty different uh, from the species from Mars my understanding of that Um, but my understanding again is is that when uh, you're talking about abductions or other situations that would not be the species from Mars they're very very um, isolationist in that way they really don't have expansionist models or much interest in anything outside their own world
1: So tell me about the uh, sort of the last battle uh, that involved a considerable loss of life that you were involved with.
2: So there were like four divisions. Uh, We got sent to a locale to retrieve an object, which, to be honest, I think the whole thing was just a ruse and was probably uh, designed to get rid of a bunch of people, including myself and the division that I was in. Um, So we, there was this, um, so it was kind of a big red round rock. If anyone has ever seen Ayers Rock uh, in Australia, it was kind of similar. It's this big, like round rock that sticks right out of the ground and um, like a big dome. And in this case, it had openings uh, around it at about clock positions. So there were a number of uh, entrances and tunnels that went down into the central chamber of this Structure, you know, trying to identify what someone's alien architecture is sometimes is, is more guesswork than anything else. I would say if I was to take a stab at it, that it might have been a temple of some kind or, or a, um, some sort of ancient sacred site. I'm just going to base that on what my trained observer eyes could tell me without being able to try and describe it to you because it was very different than anything I've ever seen before. Uh, And anyway, it just turned out to be a trap. And so uh, by the time that we're down in the middle, um, we find ourselves surrounded in um, a different tribe of indigenous reptoids swarming in by the thousands and basically just cutting everybody to pieces. Um, They had to use a a jump gate that's normally reserved for ships for ship travel, uh, to get us out of there. They were able to, um, create an opening right underneath our feet. So we sort of fell through this jump gate that again, wasn't really designed for human travel. So a few people were caught in the edge of the event horizon, which uh, means their whole body did not make it through. So they perished and there were of the wounded, uh, that made it. You know, there were less than three dozen. Of those who survived, I, I can't say for sure, but I, I doubt it was 100%. Um, but, you know, there were less than three dozen survivors from the entire incident.
1: And this, this raid on this sacred tunnel, this was, uh, as you discovered, sort of in violation of some treaty. There there had been a peace treaty signed uh, with between the, uh, the military and these indigenous groups, correct? Well,
2: That's a good question. I mean, there was an armistice to my understanding, but I couldn't tell you exactly which tribes were involved in that because just because one group of reptoids signs a treaty doesn't mean you have a treaty with every reptoid on the entire planet because they're very tribal. So I'm not sure who we were had the armistice with, who we didn't exactly, whether this particular group was – under the umbrella of that armistice or not, that's all a gray area that I can't answer. Uh, It just, what I can say is, um, it was shenanigans of the highest order, uh, and it shouldn't have probably gone down that way if it was a lawful operation of some kind, and um, it certainly wouldn't have turned out the way that it was if I think it wasn't the intention for most or all of us not to make it through that day alive.
1: So you, you, uh, after you recovered from your injuries, you spent the last three years of your tour there as a pilot. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah, I sort of, uh, you know, kind of had this childhood dream get to come true, which is I got to be a pilot and I got to fly spaceships, which is pretty cool. So, yeah, um, I I got a promotion, got to go, a commission, got to go to flight school, and yeah, spent the rest of my career as a pilot in an air wing on the EDF-SS Nautilus, which is basically an aircraft carrier in space, about a mile long, kind of like a long cylinder.
1: Hmm. So, at a certain point, uh, they do this kind of reverse aging process on you so that you can be sent back to Earth into your original timeline is that right
2: yeah they call it age reversing but my understanding what they really do is just hatch you out a younger clone body of yourself and then transfer your consciousness into that clone body and then put you back and then throw your old body in the dumpster
1: oh is that all (laughs) my word so you're reinserted back into your original timeline of what 1987
2: correct November time frame of 1987, correct.
1: And what were you doing? I mean, you were, what, 17 at that time?
2: I was still in high school. It's a senior in high school. Yeah. Right.
1: And then immediately some of these memories start to bleed through at this point.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I would say right away. Um, it was just, again, without context, you know, I would just wake up from these experiences and think, wow, that was the weirdest, longest, strangest dream uh, and when I would have waking visions or other things going on, I would um, sometimes question whether I was having a, a sane or an insane moment. And other times, you know, it's sort of cognitive dissonance would kick in. And I can, I can assure you that uh, the frontal lobe of my brain did not want to all of a sudden accept that this was going on and accept that there was this uh, tip of the iceberg that I was experiencing and that there was something much deeper going on. My own cognitive dissonance was happy to go, Memories? What memories? I don't know what memories you're talking about and, and the, the more that I could keep those things buried believe me my frontal lobe was perfectly happy to do that
1: we're just about out of time here but I mean were you in in addition to you know meditating and, and so forth and trying to piece the story together were you able to uh, say for instance you know uh, we're all familiar with the British uh, hacker Gary McKinnon and uh, his uh, discoveries in these Pentagon computers about you know deep space platforms and so forth were you able to, to get a hold of any sort of documents that, that corroborated this story?
2: Um, not yet. Uh, like I said, there's a process uh, to retrieve paperwork that uh, we've been going through for a number of years. I was told at the beginning of the process that it could easily be a 10- or 15-year process We're uh, maybe seven or eight years along that way. So uh, we'll see how much longer it might take.
1: Any... Um, Sorry, but, any pushback? I mean, are you being uh, monitored? I mean, I, they can't be happy you're speaking out.
2: Um, you know, my people don't mind. My people are the ones that ask me to speak publicly in the first place. so when you when you say they, I mean, there' that's a good question. There's certainly people who I work for who are thrilled about my speaking publicly. There are other people who are also probably very happy that I am speaking publicly, and then there are those that are not. So it kind of depends on whether you know they're the good guys or the bad guys. Uh, good guys love me. Bad guys hate me. So you know that lets me know whether I'm doing a good job or not.
1: Randy, thanks so much for spending some time. Oh,
2: my pleasure, Richard.
1: Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back with a few words about an upcoming episode. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the star chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier, and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me, and all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash patreon.com forward slash Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, decoding the secret Masonic religion hidden in Gothic cathedrals and world architecture. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.
0: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now.